we need to build a movement in the millions in order to counter the attacks on many of our communities. And so what that means is that we can't afford to kind of coalesce around a model that lifts up one leader who then kind of dictates uh, what needs to be done to a mass of people around them. From American Public Media, this is King's Last March. I'm Kate Ellis. And I'm Stephen Smith. For this final episode of the podcast, we spoke with Alicia Garza, one of the women credited with creating the Black Lives Matter movement. Garza is an activist on many fronts. She currently works with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which fights for labor rights for housekeepers, nannies, and workers who care for the elderly. Many of these workers are women of color. Garza also recently launched the Black Futures Lab, which is a project devoted to building black political power. Among other things, the Black Futures Lab is trying to mobilize black voters and to recruit progressive black candidates. So our podcast, King's Last March, focuses on the last year of Dr. King's life, um, in large part because that was a sort of forgotten year in his legacy. And it was the year that he officially, you know, broke with LBJ and, uh, you know, voiced his opposition to the Vietnam War. And he really, really staked out ground in terms of um, tackling the ills of capitalism. Um, So my first question for you is two-pronged, which is, how do you think the nation uh, remembers Dr. King, and how do you think he should be remembered? Let me start with the how I think he should be remembered, which is that I think Dr. King should be remembered in the full complexity as he lived as a human being. And I think that that's important because it actually shows us a lot more about how important he is and was to this country and to civil rights, and to human rights as a series of movements. I think how Dr. King is typically remembered is in a fairly sanitized way that really strips the exemplary way in which he both progressed as a human being um, and as he progressed in his thinking about what problems he was trying to solve and how he thought those problems might be solved in a way that could be enduring. So to give an example, uh, I think, you know, I don't always look forward to Martin Luther King Day because there are so many stories that are just not true about who he is, who he was, and what his impacts were. Oftentimes, Dr. King's legacy gets weaponized, particularly against black people, um, to encourage black people to be passive. And his doctrine of nonviolence gets taken way out of context in the sense that um, it often gets read as being non-confrontational, which, as we know from history, um, King was incredibly confrontational in that he believed that in order to create a moral shift in this country around race relations and around racism and around class and economic divisions, that you actually had to confront power where it operated. That was the entire point of sit-ins and marches and uh, all of the direct actions that he led. They were fundamentally about confrontation. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, King talks about 
how disappointed he is in what he calls the white moderate. And this letter is one of my favorites, and I read it every year, especially on Martin Luther King Day, because he says that essentially the white moderate has uh, constructed uh, uh, his actions and his words in such a way that it translates to um, the absence, right, of confrontation rather than the presence of peace that comes from exposing where injustice operates. And I think that those words are really critical for us today, given our political climate and the kind of moral questions that this country faces. Given the way that the world has evolved, um, are there aspects of King's philosophy or his leadership style that don't resonate with you or that you you would disagree with or you would want to evolve from? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, you know, for me, I, I am of the opinion that what I take from King's legacy is the deep and imperfect humanity that he displayed for everyone. And I think that that's a, a huge sacrifice that deserves to be honored um, because the, the impacts of his very flawed and imperfect humanity, um, I think have impacted generations following him. And when I think about him, I think about how um, we place very unrealistic expectations on leaders to be superheroes with superpowers that kind of transcend um, the very natural way in which we are flawed beings, right? So King himself was deeply flawed. I know there are, you know, after he died, right, there have been many stories that have emerged about you know, um, how his leadership style evolved over time, some of the disagreements that existed within the movement around King and his highly visible profile. There was a lot of tension between King and, and Ella Baker, for example, around um, the approach to leadership and what it meant for everyday people, right, who were not anointed as leaders. Uh, I know there are also conversations that have happened about um, you know, his infidelity and, and what that meant about um, uh, his ability to kind of stand in or on this moral high ground. But for me, I mean, I, while I acknowledge the ways in which um, uh, all of those factors have problematic aspects to them, I'm also very clear that um, he is deeply and imperfectly human. And I have an appreciation for that. Now, with that being said, I think that um, every situation calls for specific strategies and specific tools based on time, place, and conditions. Uh, that's how I think about movement building, and that's how I think about organizing. Um, and for me, I think that um, it is not as helpful to draw what I think are generally like lazy parallels between um, the civil rights period, which was actually a period of 40 years, uh, to today. There's just very, very different conditions. People are existing in different um, time, place, and conditions. <laughs> and um, especially with the, uh, the integration 
of technology, I, I just feel like they're almost apples and oranges. So to me today, what I, the ways in which I try to think about King's legacy is what can we learn about um, how to take on contradictions in a way that propels us forward as opposed to keeps us stuck or keeps us moving backwards. And I'll just give a quick example. Uh, this debate about violence versus nonviolence, for example, is an age-old debate. And it is uh, certainly not as nuanced as it could or should be. And we've seen that a lot over the last five years with the kind of explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for black lives, and also other movements as well, right? We're not the only game in town. Uh, and, and I often think that these contradictions get weaponized in ways that are not intended to seek greater understanding, but are instead intended to um, curtail progress. Uh, I, I think that a conversation around um, nonviolence is only helpful um, if we're depending on what we're talking about specifically and how we understand what violence is and what violence is not. Um, for me, protesting is not violence, right? Um, but for others, they feel like protests are violent because they are or they can be confrontational, or they can be loud or disruptive or make people feel uncomfortable. Uh, things like stopping traffic, some people think that those are violent actions. I'm not somebody who agrees with that. Um, but it also really depends for me on the context in which we're having the conversation. And I, I think that sometimes the push for uh, nonviolence is really a push to say, you know, let the process unfold how it will. And for someone who has lost a loved one to gun violence uh, unnecessarily and unexpectedly, to tell them to wait for a process that may never happen <laughs> um, is in of itself violent. And so I, I do think that there's um, a need for us, right, to use King's legacy to learn about how we grapple with the contradictions of um, this moment, right, where, for example, many people believe that police and policing are intended to keep them safe. And there is a contradiction in how many police killings we have now become aware of, um, where people don't feel safe around police, because there are no checks and balances. And so I, I think there's a way in which we can use King's legacy to really examine how do we grapple with contradictions like that in ways that help us unlock new opportunities for action and forward motion, as opposed to getting us stuck into having kind of circular debates that don't get to the heart of the issue, or that result in moving us backwards, like what's happening right now at the federal level with the Department of Justice, for example, where their approach has been um, to double down in their support of law enforcement, to dismantle policies that have been uh, fought for for the last 25 years uh, to increase transparency and oversight over police and policing. Um, and, and so there's a way in here that I think um, reclaiming King's legacy means really more deeply understanding the ways that systems work and also understanding the ways through contradictions that um, fundamentally, if resolved, could move us to a different place if we wanted it to.
Alicia Garza, you are an activist on a variety of fronts, and one of them is with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. In many ways, one would think that there are parallels between your work and that of Dr. King's, especially at the end of his life when he was trying to build a coalition of poor people for what he called a new front in the civil rights movement. But I wonder if we're falling into one of what you've cautioned us to think of as lazy parallels. I mean, is there, is there a line from King's work to yours in the Domestic Workers Alliance? There definitely is. Um, uh, and <laughs> um, I think that the domestic worker movement um, really needs to be credited to Dorothy Bolden. And Dorothy Bolden uh, was a black woman from the South. She was from Atlanta, Georgia. And she organized the very first domestic workers union um, in this country. And that, that was when? Uh, this was in the um, 1950s. And she did so because uh, domestic workers during the 1930s, alongside agricultural workers, uh, were excluded from labor from most federal labor protections in this country as a result of a racist compromise between uh, labor leaders and Southern lawmakers at the time. Uh, and Dorothy Bolden uh, is responsible uh, for creating an organization for domestic workers that would not only address uh, inequities in wages and pay, but that would also fight to rehumanize domestic work as work, rehumanize domestic workers as people, uh, and also fundamentally challenge systems of governance that were functioning in an undemocratic way as it related to black women in, in particular. I was out here for a cause and a reason. And the reason was women's. And the cause they weren't making anything to live on, survive on, they're cheering on. And I had to pay the same price for the lights. I have to set the same price for, the, for water. I have to see, pay tax like you do. And I have to pay uh, buy groceries like you. I had to close my chair. And I said, what y'all expect for us to damn me? We ain't making nothing now. And I said, but I ain't gonna work no more on my knees. Mm -hmm. And I bet not see another woman on her knees working. Dorothy Bolden's work can also be traced to uh, the washerwoman strike of the 1880s, uh, which was a very similar process where women and women of color got organized to not only improve their lives, but to transform the industries and the communities that they lived and worked in. So I, I do think that um, where there are parallels that can be made in terms of King's work being an inspiration for other movements to emerge. I also can't help but know that um, it is often the narrative of history that men um, are credited often uh, with the work that women do to improve the lives of all of us. And so I, I, I would say that the Domestic Workers Alliance certainly sits within King's legacy, but I would be remiss if I did not um, also give credit and uh, admiration uh, to Dorothy Bolden, who made sure that domestic workers uh, could win rights, respect, and dignity for, for themselves and for everyone. You're one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm curious how you think King's work and his legacy informs Black Lives Matter. I think that King's work and King's legacy informs Black Lives Matter 
in a number of ways. Um, and one of those ways in particular that I would just highlight is uh, his commitment to uh, civil disobedience and an understanding that um, business as usual would result in business as usual. <laughs> and so, um, you know, pleas to power that weren't backed themselves by power um, would not produce any kind of fundamental change. And in King's writings, you see his frustration uh, with, with the lack of movement um, that was created as a result of, of the actions that he helped to lead. But he also, let me say it this way. <laughs> we remember King today as a venerated hero. He's almost reached sainthood status, I would say. And in reality, towards the end of his life, King was attacked and not supported by a lot of people, people that he thought were in his corner. And it is only now after his death, years and years and years later, uh, that people see the importance of the work that he did and the sacrifices that he endured alongside many, many other people um, for us to get to this point. And I think with Black Lives Matter, um, there are some similar tendencies, although um, I feel like Black Lives Matter is just getting started. So it's hard in some ways to um, draw parallels in a way that um, is able to be retrospective about, you know, how do these things come together when when this movement is still very much in progress and in process. Uh, but I can say that um, uh, the, the notion that we appreciate people when they're gone um, is something that Black Lives Matter certainly endures, right? So during the height of uh, protests that were happening in 2014 and 2015, there was a lot of um, pushback <laughs> and contention around whether or not these protests were necessary, whether or not these protests would result in anything. Um, and even still today, there are some of those sentiments, right? Um, and at the same time, I think we're in a moment now, particularly with some of the most recent police killings or the recent uh, failed efforts to hold police accountable, where people are getting much clearer that uh, protest is absolutely necessary, that um, civil disobedience is absolutely necessary. And with the added, uh, oh, I was going to say something not good for the air, um, with the added uh, burden of the change in administration and the extreme uh, ideology and viewpoints now of the president and his administration, I think it's becoming even more clear to people who uh, may not have chosen a side in 2014 or chose to stay neutral or silent um, that we have some real problems on our hands that, if not resolved now, will um, impact this country for many generations to come if we are still around by then. I want to circle back to women's leadership. Um, Dr. King and the SCLC, as you know, um, of course, had an approach to leadership that was male-dominated and organized in a top-down structure. Women, as you also know, played a crucial role at the SCLC, not to mention the rest of the civil rights movement. Um, but they weren't given a public platform. Uh, Black Lives Matter 
is an intentionally intersectional coalition with no, you know, centralized organized structure, right? And I'm wondering what you and your fellow activists are doing today as as leaders. What is your thinking about leadership? Our approach to leadership is that in order for us to win the transformations that we seek, we have to develop many, many leaders. We need to build a movement in the millions in order to counter the attacks on many of our communities. And so what that means is that we can't afford um, to kind of coalesce around a model that lifts up one leader um, who then kind of dictates uh, what needs to be done um, to a mass of people around them. And there's several reasons for this. Um, First and foremost, What we understand is that um, movement looks different in different places in the country. I live in Oakland, California, and there's no way that I could tell somebody in St. Paul, Minnesota, what they should be doing to change conditions there. I don't know anything about St. Paul, Minnesota, and they may not know anything about Oakland, California. But what we can do is build the capacity of each of us um, to be able to lead based on a deep understanding of time, place, and conditions. And we can also connect each other as leaders so that we make sure that we're lifting up each other's fights and each other's visions and each other's demands. So that's one piece. And I think oftentimes Black Lives Matter kind of gets described as leaderless, which I think is is a misdescription of um, how we operate. In fact, we are driven by creating many, many leaders, building the capacity of many people to lead so that we can't easily be stopped. Now, what we know about Dr. King's legacy is that he was assassinated. And when Dr. King was assassinated, uh, it, it had deep and severe impacts on the ability of that specific movement to endure in the way that it had because everything was organized around him. Uh, Similarly with leaders like Malcolm X who were assassinated, these are targeted strategies to destabilize and derail movements that are successful. So really what we see ourselves doing is learning from lessons uh, of our past so that we can actually solve different problems this time around. And this time around, we don't want our movement to collapse because you know, one or two anointed leaders were taken out and therefore people are disoriented and unclear about how to move forward. In this case, we have many leaders that have a number of different strategies that make sense for their particular uh, geographical locations, their particular community uh, dynamics, But what we do is connect those leaders across boundaries, across geographies, um, so that we can be bigger than the sum of our parts. You recently launched the Black Futures Lab, which focuses on electoral politics. What is the goal of this new project, and how does it it intervene in the politics you have just described, the politics of now? The Black Futures Lab is geared towards building independent, progressive Black political power. And we aim to transform black communities into constituencies that build power in cities and states so that black people can make decisions over our own lives and so that we have an opportunity to live well and live powerfully 
and to be able to access the things that all people deserve to have. And we think that that is an incredible intervention because um, the current leadership in this country has a completely opposite agenda. And for us, it is about using the tools of electoral organizing uh, to transform the status quo, but it is also about transforming those tools themselves to make them work better for black people and our unique and specific needs. So we just launched a black census project to better understand the ways in which black communities ourselves are changing demographically and to be able to build an agenda for our lives that really reflects the complexities of who we are. So that means a focus on black people living in rural areas, black people who are immigrants, black people who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, and black people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered, and gender nonconforming. We are aiming to talk to 200,000 black people across the country about what we experience, about how we act politically, and most importantly, about what we envision for our futures. And we are training 100 black organizers to take this survey into 20 states uh, where there are high concentrations of the people who I just mentioned. And we've also launched the survey online at blackcensus.org. And thus far, even within a month, we've gathered uh, 5,000 responses from black people all over the country who are eager to be listened to and seen for the first time in a very long time. We plan to use this data to be able to shift the way that institutions engage black people politically and to be able to shift the way that policy is developed and created as it relates to black lives. So in August, we will launch our Black to the Future Public Policy Institute that will use the data from the Black Census Project to inform new policies that legislate solutions for the problems that exist in our communities. I have what I think may be a final question for you. Um, and it's this, I've been, you know, I've been thinking about you, I've been thinking about Martin Luther King, and one of the other sort of dimensions of our documentary about him and our podcast is really about something that you touched on earlier, which is the fact that he was human and he struggled. And, you know, we get some glimmers of that in some of the final or just some of the um, sermons that he gave in the last year of his life that sort of reveal more of that inner suffering and and striving to be better. And and then I thought about you and the kind of leader that you are and the kind of work that you're doing and the range of um, people's deaths that have been protested, you know, since Just Black Lives Matter was, was organized. And so I wonder about you as a person, as a leader, how you cope in the dark moments. Mm. It's a great question. And um, as you know, um, I'm in my own kind of personal dark moment. I'm losing my mother to advanced stage brain cancer. And it has meant that um, I'm transforming before my own eyes in terms of how I see and practice leadership. Um, and certainly what I'm more aware of now than I think I was even 
a month and a half ago when my mom got sick, um, is that for many people um, who enter this movement, they come into it um, through their own sense of tragedy. And I think about people like Stefan Clark, who um, was brutally murdered by police in Sacramento, California, just a few weeks ago. And I think about the very public grieving of his brother. I, well, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need you to be sorry because I can't do nothing when I'm sorry, okay? We're tired of the sorries and, and, and the trying to exploit our pain and all that. Okay, we're trying to move forward. We're trying to bring peace and justice. We want community centers, resource right. centers, libraries, our own security teams. We're trying to get it for us, for Zoe, for Stefan Clark. We're trying to all bring right. us together, us. And I have a lot of compassion and empathy for that um, because, I mean, I personally think that I... Um, have a lot more resources uh, to be able to choose um, how public my grief is. But when someone has lost a family member to gun violence at the hands of police, the people that they believed keep them safe, um, that public grieving um, is something that both catalyzes their leadership, but it also changes their lives. And for me as a leader in this moment where I am saying goodbye to my mother and watching so many people have to say goodbye to their loved one without the amount of time that I've had with her to be able to say goodbye is additionally heartbreaking in a way that has moved me and transformed me um, very rapidly. And um, the thing that I'm just really conscious of is how important it is for us to pay very close attention and resource and invest in um, tools that help people address the trauma that often is what brings them into movements in the first place. And if we don't and we're not able to address in real and authentic ways that trauma, um, then it impacts movements themselves. Um, and certainly, I think when we talk about King's legacy, um, we should be mindful, right, that um, most of the stories that we hear um, are not all of the stories that there were. And certainly some of the challenges that people had was dealing with grieving families um, who were catapulted into spotlights that they weren't prepared for. And frankly, if they were able to have their loved one back, um, they would trade that for their loved one in a minute. Uh, and so I, I guess for me as a leader, um, I'm reminded even more now that um, there are many, many things that we are fighting for and that part of what we are fighting for is the right for people to live full and dignified lives and to not have their lives stolen from them before it is their time. We mean business now and we are determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. 
We aren't engaged in any negative protest and in any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be men. We are determined to be people. We are saying... We are saying that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, we don't have to live like we are forced to live. King's Last March is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. Support for King's Last March comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved. To hear more speeches and see photos from King's final year, please visit our website, apmpodcast.org mlk. This series was produced by Kate Ellis and me, Stephen Smith, with Kate Osborne, Chrissy Pease, and Tracy Mumford. It was edited by Catherine Winter. The technical director was Veronica Rodriguez, with production help from Corey Schreppel. The executive producer is Nathan Toby. This is APM, American Public Media.